because yeah. that blood pressure goes up the minute they open the door, right? Yeah, I bet. I so bet. those quiet locations are really, really important and just being very consistent. Um, if the cat needs to hide under a blanket and you have the situation where you are using a cup and you don't have to hold the cat, you, that's great because they'll feel more comfortable and their level of stress will drop. Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Jolla Kirpenstein, and this is the Per Podcast. Uh, thank you all for joining us again. And I'm here uh, with one of my favorite hosts, Dr. Kelly St. Denis. Hello, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, Jolla. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. And uh, this is the first time ever that I can tell you that we have about a foot of snow here in beautiful Kansas. I feel that your, your garden gnome has been buried. <laughs> yes. Yes. I had a garden gnome and I think he is about i would say one foot high yeah and uh, so this is a new measuring skill that we're using <laughs> here in kansas There's now you're gonna have to get multiple foot. garden gnomes of different heights so you can keep track see that's <laughs> it or i need to do two gnomes so the snow is one gnome high one gnome it's high completely covered and uh yeah so that's that's really good um he's uh, he's he's taking his uh, weather function really seriously I guess I could have used that here yesterday too because we had an ice storm followed oh, by a snowstorm last night. So yes, that was yes. exciting. I don't think we have a foot of snow though, but I can tell you it was not fun shoveling this morning because it was soaking wet. Ooh, so yeah. Skip the yeah, gym. It was very very light because um, yesterday it froze minus seventeen degrees centigrade. Yikes! So the That's snow was very, very and nice and. Um, tried to use the snowblower which didn't work very well <laughs> <laughs> so i made one little path for the uh, amazon person to cross um but uh, the car still has to wade itself through a foot of snow oh dear oh dear oh dear no fun no, no fun. fun no fun so this is the per podcast and thanks everybody for joining uh we are going to discuss a couple of articles yes. in this one and next one and uh, we have three articles and they're all from the journal of feline medicine and surgery and they're all uh just out i think they're really new so i'm very yeah. excited about that and uh totally. they're three really different articles so uh so Kelly, which one shall we start with? Well, you know, I'm partial to talking about blood pressure. So if we want to start with my favorite, we could start with that one. <laughs> All right, let's 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 do that. Let's do the blood pressure one. And uh, that is the cross-sectional survey of non-invasive indirect blood pressure measurements practices in cats by veterinarians by Dr. Navarro, Summers, Rich, New and Dr. Dr. Jessica Quimby, Quimby who uh, we know very, very well. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, this is a survey of small animal veterinarians, and they wanted to determine the current methods of indirect blood pressure measurement, and then uh, detailed techniques used to reduce situational hypertension. We talked about that before, yeah. and then better understand the obstacles to performing blood pressure measurements in cats. So three uh, objectives that they had. Uh, what do you think of the article? 
Kelly. I like that they've looked into um, feedback from people uh, about what they do in practices because it is quite varied and their study, their results certainly have shown that. Uh, of course, I think they did a the I think they did this on VIN or they had a survey that people could fill out and they may have lost some people who don't do blood pressure, mm -hmm. but at least with the people that were doing blood pressure, they were able to assess, you know, what their preferences were, what their understanding of the machines they were using were. And then I think it's great that they're talking about reducing situational hypertension, which for some of our listeners is previously known as white coat hypertension. White coat hypertension, right? yes. Right. But because it can be caused by more than just our doctor's white coats, and they're yep. now referring it to situational. And they used, uh, uh, of, they did indeed a VIN survey, which I really like. Yeah. You do have a, a predominance of English speaking people on that, of course. They had 733 veterinarians, of which 96% completed the survey because the, the other part uh, didn't complete it because they didn't use the tools that mm -hmm. they have. And, uh, and, and so uh, there are still veterinarians, obviously, that if you don't have blood pressure measurement tools, uh, that don't do it. So, but it, it's pretty common practice right now, isn't it, for especially cat veterinarians to use? Yeah, it certainly sounds like a lot of, a lot of people are using it more than I even thought. Um, and that's good because cats and dogs, we'll use the D word, are at increased risk of hypertension as they get older, just like people. So we really need to be measuring. But a lot of people are intimidated by the process and they don't know how to interpret the results when they do get them. And it's kind of like a fine art sometimes with cats, right? Because they get stressed out so badly. Yes, indeed, indeed. And it's uh, when you talk with people, they normally say that it's very difficult to do. So mm. we need to do some myth busting here too, because I don't think it's that difficult when, when you have the right tools, but a lot of people look against it uh, as being a difficult thing to do. Um, and then uh, what I thought was interesting is that there were two uh, types of blood measurements. Uh, one was the Doppler and the other one uh, was the oscillometry. Yes, yeah. And we Can have you explain the... the difference between the two. Yeah, so the, the Doppler is measuring just the flow directly with the sound, so the flow of blood moving through the blood vessel. So just like when you occlude the blood vessel with a cuff and then you're listening or the machine is giving you the noise of the blood, blood coming back through that blood vessel once you sort of let the occlusion off. Um, but the, the oscillometric is detecting waves in the blood vessels and it's, it's relatively new compared to the Doppler and there's two different kinds. So like regular oscillometric, and then we have now high definition oscillometric. Um, if you ask me to describe the difference between the two, I'd have a hard time. But the HDO or high definition is, is considered to be a little bit superior in terms of some of the testing that's been done compared to standard methods. So how much are those machines? Um, they can be quite costly. So I have one that uh, is recommended in the ISFM hypertension guidelines, which is available at uh, online yep. for free access and it was I think 2500 US oh wow yeah so they're expensive and it, of course a, 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 a Doppler with a uh, cuff is probably not that expensive uh, to use because it's also the one that that is used most commonly I think 70% yeah. of the vets use the Doppler yeah instead of the, it's, been a, uh, it's been around longer 
Yeah. Um, it's, it takes a little more uh, nuanced and the cat has to be held a little more still than if you're using the Oslo metric. One of the nice things about the Oslo metric is you don't have to place that little crystal of the Doppler onto the over a blood vessel. You can just yeah. um, put a cuff on the cat and it will yeah. measure those waves. So there's a lot more of a cat friendly aspect to the Oslo metric. You don't have to put as many hands on or any hands on really comes down yeah. to it. Yeah. So. Interesting also that from this surface that most of the people doing the, the measurements are techs, which I loved. So it's mm -hmm. not that this is a instrument that needs to be done by veterinarians, but in 85% of the cases, techs were doing the measurements, which, uh, which I think is, 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 is great. Yeah, it's really important that, you know, we have our techs and technicians and nurses in there doing this because they'll get a good comfort level with it. They'll understand the cat's demeanor sometimes more than we will as veterinarians because we're rushing from one appointment to the next. So yeah. they're usually more in tune with the patient's nursing care. So it's helpful. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And uh, you know, uh, um, then the, the the tech doesn't have to wear a white coat, so you don't get the, <laughs> the stress of that too. Uh, um, they also mentioned, and we'll go probably a little deeper in that. Uh, to there are some techniques to decrease. Uh, stress. Uh, what are some examples how we can decrease decrease stress uh, for those cats that we do measurements on? Because stress obviously increases blood pressure, and then you get readings that I can remember cats that are that were in uh, my uh, exam room and that had pulses of over two hundred and were completely okay. stressed out about everything we did. And yeah. I don't think I want to do a blood pressure measurement on those. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that you can reduce that stress to reduce the risk of situational hypertension. I certainly listen, they list here a number of really common ones. First of all, using a quiet location, um, minimizing restraint, which we've kind of talked a little bit about, which would be cat friendly handling. And then also, if you're going to do blood pressure on a cat, you want to let them acclimatize to the room a bit, but then you want to do your blood pressure before you do a full physical, before you start trying to take blood or urine samples, because all of those things are going to bring the cat's um, blood pressure up. And I, it's amazing to me how quickly it changes. I was working in a practice where I, um, they gave me my own cat room. It was great, but the dog oh. scale was outside of my room. Oh. Uh, and the one day I was taking blood pressure on the cat and it was fine. It was fine. I, I taking a few readings and then they were trying to get this great Dane on a scale. And there were four people out there trying to convince the great Dane to get on the scale. And my cat's blood pressure went up. And then when they were finished and they left, I took it again and it was normal. So it's very, very quick to change in response to stresses. Yeah. And I see that quite often. And I, I work in another practice now where sometimes staff will just walk into the room when I'm in an appointment and I'm like, go. Because yeah. the cat's <laughs> blood pressure goes up the minute they open the door, right? Yeah, I bet. I so bet. those quiet locations are really, really important. And just being very consistent. Um, if the cat needs to hide under a blanket and you have the situation where you are using a cup and you don't have to hold the cat, you, that's great because they'll feel more comfortable and their level of stress will drop. And this study was done before, and we'll talk about the, the guidelines that came out, but I think this study was done before those guidelines came out. Uh, um, so uh, they mentioned that in the article, uh, one day they have the discussion. Uh, we might go into that a little bit later. Yeah. Um, so I think this is the first article that really mentions these circumstances that uh, you need to try to attain to make these cats more comfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then the other thing that I find too is that uh, experience makes a huge difference for cats. So if we're 
just doing it for the first time when we think a cat might be hypertensive, that's probably not the first time for that cat to be experiencing a cough, maybe the Doppler crystal, whatever else. Um, so doing routine blood pressure monitoring on cats that you don't think are hypertensive is ideal. Um, yeah. Because then they have experience with it and they're going to be a little less stressed when it really counts. So are you saying every cat that comes into your cat clinic should have a blood pressure measurement done? Um, yes, ideally. Um, I know in my practice, when it was open, we were starting as early as seven years of age. And really in an ideal world, cats should be having some blood pressure monitoring, awake blood pressure monitoring, even when they're young adults. So they have that experience. So they know the cuff and they know what the sounds are, if there are sounds, and they know how it feels. Because um, there's a lot of things involved with that. And I was at my doctor's in October and they, they were taking my blood pressure and I realized, you know, that cuff it really does hurt. Like it's, yeah. it's not comfortable. Yeah. Um, and I was sitting there thinking, of course, about my cat patients. <laughs> going, wow. Like this is not pleasant and I yeah. know what's going on. So it's, I'm, I feel grateful that my cat patients sit, sit as still as they do when we're doing it, because it's not a pleasant, not a pleasant sensation. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So the materials and methods of this study, uh, they uh, did it uh, in 2020, around December of 2020 until January 21, and they targeted 42,000 VIN members. I didn't even know that there were that many, but that's, uh, that's, that's crazy. And so they had about 700 people respond to the survey, which I think for a survey is really good. We have another survey that we're going to talk about, mm. and they had a lot of less uh, responses. Uh, like I said, 733 veterinarians completed the survey, of which about 30 were kicked out because they didn't have the tools. Uh, most of them were from the USA and Canada. And then there was a whole lot of other countries that, uh, that were part of the, the survey. Uh, and most of these were general practitioners, of course, because that's where you do this. Although I think that when you're a internal medicine specialist, uh, you have this equipment too, and you use yeah. it quite a lot too. Yeah. Um, and then we, we, we discussed that most of these vets have at least one type. And, you know, I was surprised that a lot of them had both of the types of mm. measurements in their clinics. Yep. And, and use them at a regular basis. And I think the only thing that I was missing is how often they really use it in their cat population. That would have been nice if we if we could get that that uh, that information. So are they doing it on every cat or are they doing it on very specific uh, cases? So uh, what percentage would would they guesstimate that they use in the cat? The other thing is uh, we do this on conscious cats. Eh? So we don't mm -hmm. anesthetize them for this. Correct. Why is that? Um, well, it, I guess when they're anesthetized, their blood pressure is going to drop for starters. I mean, we take their blood pressures when they're under anesthesia. I hope it's an important part of monitoring, um, but that measuring for hypertension is going to be when they're awake. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, of course. So the, I think you, for, for a baseline uh, blood pressure, I mean, if you know what the blood pressure is under anesthesia, I mean, you can use that, of course, as kind of a stabilized baseline, especially when you take an average of that. Um, and, uh, but it is, of course, you know, you need to measure when they're awake, yeah. when they respond to, to, to uh, as less stimuli as possible. So yeah, think, and minimal drugs on board. So minimal you know, drugs. Cats, yeah, if minimal cats require drugs. sedation or analgesics like buprenorphine or other opioids, then those are going to impact their blood pressure. Um, but we do know that using drugs like gabapentin probably don't impact the blood pressure. So indirectly they might as a 
reducing the anxiety of the patient, but that's good. Um, I no. don't think they have, we don't have any evidence to show that gabapentin has cardiovascular impact. So a lot of people like to use gabapentin when cats are stressed or anxious coming in. And it no. certainly is something that we can use with comfort. So what kind of drugs would you not use? I really just avoid most of these other drugs. So um, if patients are um, needing something to come in to be less anxious or if they're painful, then I am going to try to use gabapentin because I have a comfort level with it not impacting the results um, directly. But if we use other drugs that cats might need for sedation or analgesia, again, like buprenorphine, for example, or butorphanol, um, and any of the oral drugs and mantidine, I don't know what those are going to impact the blood pressure, then we're going to have a harder time interpreting the results. Yep. Uh, we already talked about technicians uh, doing this more than veterinarians itself, which I like. Uh, another very interesting question was, uh, you know, why people would not like to use it or why people thought it was difficult. And, and the points that came up was that they felt it was difficult to interpret the readings. Uh, mm -hmm. Because of the anxiety and stress cats, difficult, dif difficulty in performing the measurements in cats, and then technical staff being uncomfortable in doing the measurements. And then last but not least, the time-consuming part. And then sometimes owners didn't want to do it. So there's lots of reasons why, mm -hmm. uh, why vets felt that you know, this measurement was not, yeah, not yeah. as useful. So what would you say to a veterinarian that has, or a technician that has issues with it? What are some tips? Well, I would, I would start by um, looking at what they're doing for cat-friendly handling. So are they interacting with those cats in a cat-friendly way? Because that's going to make the difference. And are they taking those steps that we've already looked at, you know, yep. to reduce the anxiety in the cat? But also, um, how well do they understand the machine that they have? Are they following the manufacturer's instructions? Are they keeping that machine up to date? And then I always recommend that each practice have designated individuals. So it's not just anybody. You don't just say, oh, you know, you've never done it before, but it's okay, you go ahead and do it. Because there's so many nuances to interpreting how the cat is feeling with each reading. Um, it's really good if you have individuals who are experienced with it and can do it regularly. And so again, the time for these people to learn it is on cats that we don't think are hypertensive. So this yeah. is where we're trying to do it on cats that are, are just there for their routine preventive care visits or their biannual senior visits um, that we're not necessarily thinking are senior or hypertensive, right? So. And that makes, it, how often would you do it then? So even if a cat is, so in a cat that is diseased, I can imagine that it will be a little bit more often, but in a normal mm -hmm. cat, how often would you recommend to do this? Yeah, so I think in our senior guidelines, like they're recommending once a year, starting around seven or eight years of age. And then when they're getting up into the 10, 11, then we're starting to do it twice a year. Mm -hmm. um, in my own practice, I was, if my clients were amenable, I was seeing cats eight and up twice a year for full yep. physical testing and blood pressure if I could. And then some cats, like cats with kidney disease who are at increased risk of hypertension, they should probably be checked every four months. Um, and then if they have other diseases, it's sort of depending on what they have, like diabetes is another risk or um, Cushing's. And then we have those cats that might have uh, hyperadrenocorticism, right? Those cats will also have low potassium and they need special regulation. Uh, they're gonna need different drugs too. 
another thing that came up was that I, I always remember that when you were thinking of hypertension, you need to do a funding exam and not every vet did that. So how important is doing a funding exam in cases where you find hypertension? Uh, I think doing a funding exam in every cat, whether you find hypertension or not, is important. Partly, again, because you need to get the experience at looking at retinas. So I work with fourth year students and I always say to them, like, if you don't do this regularly, you're never going to know what normal looks like. And if you don't have a comfort level with looking at normal, you're never going to understand what abnormal looks like. And sometimes if you're looking at the retina, you can actually see abnormalities that suggest hypertension. And that may help you to convince the client, the caregiver to go forward with blood pressure testing. Um, because that's one of the few places that we can actually visualize damage from hypertension. So we're going to start to see changes in that retina, like wavy blood vessels. So they're supposed to, you know, like be branches of a tree. They might start looking kind of wavy. You might see spots of hemorrhage and you might even see the retina lifting off the back of the eye. So if you're not comfortable looking at normal by looking at regular cats on a regular basis, again, um, it's going to be harder to, to see those things. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Good point. So, uh, what limb do you normally use for your blood pressure measurements? The yeah, I noticed in here they talked about people had preferences for tail yes. and front limb, um, and honestly, it actually depends on the machine you're using. And so, if people aren't aware of that, they should be looking at their machine and reading the instructions, um, because the HDO that I have, it's from Germany, and they recommend uh, it's been validated for forelimb and tail, but they recommend using the tail. Yeah, and it's not my preference it's the machine that they're recommending. So whenever people are starting to do this, they should actually really look at what the machine is, is recommending, what the machine manufacturer is recommending for that particular machine, because there may be a specific thing. Yeah, and, and, and the data show that most people do the forelimb anyway, but that it's also because of the Doppler. Eh? I, 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 I don't know. I don't think the Doppler makes any difference if the front or hind limb, but people tend to prefer the front limb for the Doppler measurements. Yeah. Well, and you have to consider when, uh, whenever you're doing any of these measurements on cats, they're older cats, and they're going to have a higher incidence of degenerative joint disease or arthritis. So that means yeah. you're manipulating forelimbs or hind limbs. That cat might be painful. For, all of a sudden, you're also contributing to situational hypertension by hurting the cat. Um, and that was one of the things I really liked about the Doppler, because I wasn't touching any part of that body that is likely to be arthritic. Yeah, And I was I surprised... I thought, oh my goodness, I'll never be able to get cuffs on tails, right? Cats and tails. Um, but it's been better than using the forelimb. And I think it's yeah. an arthritis-based thing. I think that a lot of cats with the forelimb, they have sore elbows uh, and they don't want you to touch their arms. So, so uh, read the instructions. And if it's a tail, use the tail. Um, yeah. that, that's, a, that's a great conclusion out of this. Um, how often do you do it? Do you do it once and then you take that as the measurement or are you doing multiple times? Yeah, I, I was surprised to see in this study how, how much variation there is in how often, how many readings people take um, mm -hmm. and whether they average them, if they drop the highest and lowest. Um, some people were just looking for the ones that were more consistent. Uh, when I do them, I try to follow the ACBIM and the ISFM guidelines. There's two publications, and it's recommended that you take at least six readings and you toss out the first one. Um, and when you do it a lot, you actually start to realize that that first one is usually garbage. It starts off as high. 
but yeah. there, and then your average is the rest. But if there's a lot of variation in the readings, your five readings, then, you know, you kind of have to take a step back and ask yourself if it's really reliable. There should be some level of consistency in your readings. If there yeah. isn't, something's going on that you need to maybe revisit, have a reschedule, whatever. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it, 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 it's surprising to me that people would think that one reading is enough as if this and, and especially if you know how difficult it is to, to and right. the stress situation that you're in right so that garbage reading is what some people are taking and saying oh my goodness this cat is hypertensive and they're starting them on amlodipine or telmisartan and potentially driving that cat into low blood pressure at home yeah. so they may not really be hypertensive and that's 60 percent approximately of all the people that were interviewed did one measurement just, so yeah. yeah and then the other thing that i thought was really funny is that there's three percent of venerians that don't write down the reading <laughs> right. why would why would you do that i mean why would I, that? Yeah. I mean it's nice that they're honest about it but you know it's just like if if you measure something you probably should write it down and um, so yeah. i i thought this was a really nice article we're almost at the end it's we already babbled like more like, than 22 like, minutes uh, blood oh, pressure forever i know <laughs> so so i knew that 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 this would be a really great first uh topic because you could talk for it forever uh the guidelines where can they find them uh so there's uh there's three things you can reference one is the acvim guidelines and again if you just um search google acvim hypertension guidelines they should come up um, same thing with the ISFM ones. And then on the AAFP website, we have a hypertension toolkit, um, which I think you guys, you and Susan have talked about before. And yes. it's at catvets.com. Yep. Um, and it is really nicely organized. It's put together by myself and uh, Ellen Carosa and another internal medicine specialist who, um, you know, we've got some really good practical tips in there. And it's, it's really helpful. So if you're looking for some guidance and in a practical way, that's a good place to go. Awesome, awesome. So this was the discussion of cross-sectional survey of non-invasive indirect blood pressure measurement practices in cats by veterinarians uh, by Dr. Navarro. Uh, and uh, probably one of the lead authors was Dr. Jessica Quimby, which we all love very much. Um, it is going to be published in the journal Feline Medicine and Surgery. I think this was a e-publication uh, before it is officially in print. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, under the support of AAFP. So a wonderful article. Um, mm -hmm. Thanks, Dr. Kelly, for your input. It's always great to talk to you. Uh, if people want to have more information about uh, the PER podcast, uh, you can find us at perpodcast.net. Um, we have a handle at PER podcast on every social media channel that you want to be on, except for TikTok. We talked about that last week uh, with Dr. Adam, but uh, yes. And uh, if you have any questions for us, please uh, send them to us. Uh, we're always happy to answer them. And uh, so this was a another wonderful episode. Thank you, Dr. Kelly. Thanks, Yola. I always enjoy chatting with you. All right. See <laughs> you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is 
a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 